Today we are starting a series, a new series, called In the OT, In the Old Testament. Now, most of you know I hardly ever preach out of the Old Testament. Now, just, you know that is not my, that's not my first go-to. I don't know why that is. It may have been because when I gave my life to the Lord at 27, many, many of you already know about me working at Alumax. I mentioned that earlier with Alcoa now. The aluminum mill, my boss would allow me to, because uh, the job that I did, you only worked for about five or seven minutes, then you sat for about 40 minutes. Now, some of you would love that job. I realize that. Some of you actually do that, and you're not allowed to, but you still do that, okay? You're too busy on your phone or wherever you are. However, I was allowed to. Thank goodness I didn't have a phone back then that I could do it with, but I had a little pocket New Testament in Psalms and Proverbs. So 12-hour shifts, sometimes 16, sometimes 20, literally. You could do this in the 80s. Uh, I would read the Word. And I fell in love with the New Testament in Psalms and Proverbs. And so I don't know if that's why my bent is there. But we're going to be in the OT for the next uh, little while. So we're going to start there today in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. Let me read a couple of passages of Scripture here and kind of give us a little setting, and then we'll jump into our text today. And I don't know, I don't know if we have uh, PowerPoint today. Hey, we do. That's what you get for letting Allie leave town, okay? No, but uh, we do have it. So here we go. Genesis 2, 9. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then we're going to skip down to 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One brought life. One brought death. What was different about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because we know it was pleasing to the eye. Because no doubt if it had looked like a cesspool, it looked like a, a septic tank popped open, probably would have never happened, but it looked pleasing. So it was no doubt a way to start a conversation with Eve, no doubt, and we'll talk about it in just a minute. But that, isn't that the way sin is? I've said this before, you've heard me say many times, if sin had more immediate consequences, there'd be less of it. But the problem is it doesn't work that way. It works out over time. It looks good up front in that moment. It looks pleasing even to the eye. Have you ever seen a beer commercial? That had a car wreck or domestic violence? Nah, I ain't seen one either. (laughs) Because you want to do it to the pleasing of the eye, right? You only want to bring out the best, and what you'd qualify as the best. I want to present it in such a way that it is pleasing to the eye. You would never show the other part. Again, don't take don't walk out of my statement on alcohol, even though I've got one. My point is. 
It's pleasing to the eye. So, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about what happened at the fall. I heard it years ago, and I wish I knew where I got these notes. You know, sometimes back when you're young, you just write notes down, and you don't even know them 20 years ago, and you go, man, I don't even know who, who I heard this from. You know, I think it's John Maxwell says, you know, he does, I think he's the one that brings this up. He says, you know, the first time you say it, you go, oh, so-and-so says this. Next time you say, well, I heard somewhere. The third time you go, well, I was just thinking the other day. <laughs> so, so quoting people, you got to be real careful. I have, I have gotten better over the years of writing down who I'm actually quoting. But this particular one, I don't remember. But it really helped me kind of think through what happened at the fall. And the reason why it's so helpful to me is, is because I see it played out in my life every day. I see it played out in other people's lives every day, the fall. People go, well, do you believe it happened exactly like it was with the serpent and Eve? And I said, you know, I'm I, I just going to take the word as it says. But what I will say is I see it played out every day. That part I know. That part I'm confident of. I see it in my own life experientially, and I see it in people's lives all around me experientially. So I know that part for sure I can talk about. What was different about the tree? Again, we don't know what was different about the tree, but the biggest difference about the tree was what? God said, don't eat from it. You know, God doesn't always explain himself. Sometimes he just says don't or do, whichever one. And our curiosity of the why, which is obviously what we talk about around here, start with why because you can tell people what and how, but at the end of the day, why is what inspires people. Why do I do this? Why do I go to church? Why am I a Christian? Not, not where do I go and how do I do it and what is Christianity? No, why? Why am I a Christian? Why do I follow Christ? That, that changes the conversation. Well, why do you attend Renovation Church? Well, it's two miles from my house. Well, that's not enough why. That doesn't inspire people. So we're going to read a couple of passages of Scripture here, and many of you are familiar with it. But we're going to read it anyway. So hopefully it'll be helpful to you as we kind of launch into this. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden, but God, uh, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Can you hear the voice? You will not certainly. Can you kind of hear this? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will not certainly die. See, that didn't sound the same. But anyway, I'll go ahead. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. In other words, you will know more than him, or you'll at least be on his level. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So, uh, I know I don't say that very naked. Naked. Okay, I, for you from the south, I, you know, I want to go there, but it's hard to say sometimes. So, they... So fig leaves, I did tell you there was one tree we knew in the garden. What? It was the fig tree. We know the fig tree was in the garden. We don't know all the others, but we know the fig tree was there. Because we talked about it a few weeks ago. The leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, which has been the calling throughout time. Where are you? Location's important. Knowing where you are right now is important. I don't mean physically, even though that's important too. But you can just look your phone up and figure that out. Look it on your phone. Most of it will tell you. But your phone won't tell you where you are. Where are you? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and again, a great question throughout time, who told you that you were naked? And we're going to talk about this next week, so you really want to come back. I'm just going to lay the naked message for next week, okay? So that's next week, so you've got to come back. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said. (laughs) Which they've been saying ever since. (laughs) The woman you put with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman. What is this that you have done? The woman said the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Do you see this played out every day? In all of our lives. And lives you interact with. So what's the process of going through the psychology of the fall? Like I said, I wish I knew who to give credit to. I would do it in a heartbeat. If they hear it online somewhere and they go, hey, I did that, I'll I'll give you credit. I'll come back and tell you guys. But it was so long ago, they're probably dead. I don't know. By now, I don't know. (laughs) Who knows where I got it? But I love this thought. Three critical stages. Three critical stages that you and I both deal with today. Right now. One is the sin of the mind. Eve should have said, that is what God said. I believe it, and that settles it. But she accepted the question. And the question by accepting it opens the door. From cheating to a lie to theft to adultery to drunkenness to overeating. Yeah, let's go a lot of places here. She now stood on the side of doubt. 
And when you stand on the side of doubt, it opens up this door. Sometimes it's just cracked, but sometimes, man, it's swung wide open for where you could go. And if it stays there too long, it becomes this wedge. This wedge that's driven. Because I, you've heard me say a hundred times before, if you know me, been around me a long time, that if sin had a job description, it would be one word, separation. That's its only job. It's to separate us from God. It's to separate us from each other. And it's to separate us from our purpose. So when we allow doubt to start creeping in, then it becomes this wedge. You know what a wedge is? It kind of starts getting, making that little crack. It's not quite there yet, but there's this crack that's beginning to happen. And no doubt if it's left there too long, it culminates in unbelief. It culminates in rebellion. It culminates in uh, just disobedience towards God. It, it can go all kinds of different directions. Actually, we know this. When we have the knowledge of good and evil, when we know what sin is, it's almost endless of how bad, how bad we can sin. That's the problem. God knew that. That once we have it, no, it's not just how good we can be, it's how bad we can be. I mean, you can put people in a furnace in the 20th century and turn it on by the thousands unloading train cars. Oh, yeah, you, you, by knowing the knowledge of good and evil, there is no, maybe no stopping point on how evil we can be. Because, see, Satan's primary weapon is the lie. How, how can you even talk that many people into being a part of something like that? His primary weapon is the lie. And it's not even just the lies that we tell, even though those are not good. Probably the most devastating lies are the ones we believe. If if I told you a dog's tail was a leg, how many legs would a dog have? And so many people say five. I said, no, four is tail's still a tail. Okay, no matter what I tell you, If it is what it is, we can't make it something else. Teenagers, and I was around a lot this week. Somehow or another, the enemy can whisper in your ear at 16 or 17 or 15 or 14 that you're smarter than your parents and God and any authority that you know. Begin to convince you that you are. That your years of of living has given you all this wisdom. Or on the other side, and we know it was addressed the other night, on Friday night, it could be the other way. Is that lie begins to say you will never amount to anything. That lie can tell us that wealth is the way. That lie can tell us that that extramarital affair is the way. That lie can tell us that porn is the way. That lie can tell us that, and you can just go on down the list, that lie can convince us. It's not the lies we tell that are the most devastating. It's the ones we believe 
and begin to take heart are the most devastating. But not in the reality, it's, it's not just to us because we don't live in a vacuum. It has significant ripple effects. Shame, fear, guilt. Who told you you were naked? It just said you had no shame till you ate of the fruit. Who told you you now have shame? And the reality is once we get into this position where that wedge is beginning to be driven in there between us and God, what we know God has said, The scary part at this point is that, is that the only wisdom we have to count on then is ours. And I know you. That's scary. I know me. When it's only my wisdom I have to count on, that's a bad place. Because I probably won't even seek out godly wisdom otherwise. I'll probably just be listening to people that will reinforce what I want to do. I only just listen to those news channels. Oh, yeah, it goes all over the place. <laughs> but I just want to hear one message. I used to think, I used to think the more I drank, the better driver I was. That literally is what I thought. Because I was more conscious. I've got to turn my left hand. I've got to turn my signal going left. So I'm thinking it out now, right? I'm really thinking it out. I'm really processing all this out. Because I'm more conscious than I normally am. Well, the reality is, I shouldn't have to think about turning my signal light up. <laughs> That's the thing. Okay? Oh, I'm putting my foot on the brake now. <laughs> oh. What? But I convinced myself I was a better driver. For Christians, one of the biggest lies is that transformation is an option. That transformation in our progress of following Christ is optional. It is eating the church up. It's not the lies we tell that are the biggest issue, the lies we believe and live into that are the most concerning. So sin of the mind. What about sin of the affection? Because in great relationships, trust is the most critical factor. Because it's the starting point. If trust is broken, you can forget about vulnerability, you can forget about intimacy, you can forget about all those other things because it's done. It'll never happen. But when it happens with God, where you don't think he has your best interest at heart, where you think he's forgotten about where you are, or even worse, right, he's hiding something. With Eve... Oh, if, if, if you eat from that tree, he, God knows you'll be equal with him. First off, the creation will never be equal with the creator. Some of you need to hear that about Satan. 
He's not equal with God. Just so you know. Just so you know, you may feel like day in, day out, you're being pulled here and, and, okay, and you're being pulled here and you've got joy and frustration. You're being pulled back and forth, right? Because you believe God is equal with Satan. Satan is a created being. He submits to God. When you walk in the power that God has given you and the authority, he has to submit to you. So you just need to get that thinking a lie, right? A lie. I'm equal with God. Matter of fact, you can be equal. I don't know why I had to come down there to do that. <laughs> Just more room to wear on. Eve could have said, I don't know why God said not to eat from that. But he did. I realize it's fun right now and it's tasty and it's pleasing to the eye. But he said, don't do it. And I don't really need to have any other conversation after that. Sure, we can talk about the, the nature of God and God's reasoning. No, sure, and have a conversation. I'm not saying, if you're looking for the right reason to support what God said, but if you're looking, trying to find a reason to, to tear it apart, then you might want to stay out of that conversation and with people who are. But if you know what God said... But this suspicion that God said, you know, I mean, we could take out a plethora of things. God said, don't do that. See, any great relationship, again, I think has these three elements involved in them. Great relationships. I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about great relationships. Number one is there's trust or respect, slash respect. I'm, a, I'm the slash king, just so you know. If you ever see me write anything, I'll, be, I'll put that word and that word and that word. It's just slash, 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 slash. I'm Mr. Slash. But anyway, trust or respect. I think they kind of go hand in hand. If you don't have trust and respect, you don't have a great relationship. But trust and respect, respect leads to vulnerability. Now I'm vulnerable with you because I know for a fact you have my best interest at heart. So I can be vulnerable. Which ultimately leads to intimacy. Now I know in this culture we live in today that intimacy usually begins and ends with the physical aspect of a relationship. But let me tell you right now, that is not what Scripture says. Paul says in Philippians 1.9... He's talking about our relationship with Jesus. If you want to describe intimacy, this is what he's talking about. But I think we can transpose that on our lives and on our relationships. That is this. This is my prayer. That your love, agape is the word right here. We'll talk about it again here in just a minute. But your, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I want to know you. I want to know you. But not just know you in phileo or, 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 or friendship love. I want to know you in agape love, which technically, folks, is sacrificial love. They had to make up a word, basically, <laughs> to get to agape love. That is the sacrificial love we were talking about marriages should have. When you still have to have your own way in your marriage, you will never be vulnerable or intimate. Boom. 
Drop the mic. If you have to have your way and you are the controlling factor in that marriage or wherever relationship it is, you will never, ever have intimacy. It may have started out as a physical attraction and that carried the marriage for a long time. But as long as you're not willing to be trustworthy and respected and vulnerable, you will never have intimacy. It'll never happen. Or you lose it if you begin to take it back. I have to work on this in my own life. I'm the kind of guy who just wants to almost do it myself. I'd rather not build a relationship. Just go do it. And we, we, need, we need a standard and we need to do things right and do it the best we can. But especially in my marriage, it has unbelievable ripple effects whether you believe it does or not. Potentially to the third and fourth generation. Trust and respect leads to vulnerability. And vulnerability leads to intimacy. And we live in our culture today that somehow or another that we believe the love that I just mentioned to the phileo or the Philadelphia or the brotherly love or the agape love, which is the sacrificial love. But we live in a world today that believes that tolerance equals equality. That love, love equals tolerance and equality. In other words, if you, if you love me, you will raise me up to tolerance. You will accept the tolerance and somehow or another you'll raise me to being equal. Well, I think God loves me and he's not trying to get me to be equal with him. That I know. And by the way, try raising your children that way. Try raising your children and say, Child, I love you more than you could ever imagine. So I'm going to give you all the tolerance and you do whatever you want to. And I'm going to raise you to equal and you have the same privileges I do. Just try that. You have anarchy. Unless somewhere, unless somewhere else God is speaking into that child's life, just the opposite of what you're saying. First, tolerance used to be I can love but disagree with you, and we're still all right. But I believe it's been redefined as you must accept what I do, and you must approve it. Not accept it. Not just accept it. You must approve it. Agape love is sacrificial love. I'm willing to speak the truth with grace, hand in hand. Knowing that you may not love me during this. And I used to tell teenagers, and for years I've told Jeff this, I tell teenagers, I'm not near as concerned of what you think of me at 16 as what you think of me at 36 I'm most concerned about. I'm not here to be your friend. That sounds right. I'm not here to be your friend. God has put me in your life to help you get here. And if I become your friend as a byproduct, that's awesome. As a matter of fact, some of them I became like a dad. Some of them I became like a big brother. But that was a byproduct of why I knew I was in their life. We need to know, parents, why you're in a child's life. It's not to be their best friend. Now, what I love is that now that that my kids are older, that is coming to fruition a little different. Is that we're great friends? But man, I couldn't raise them that way.
I love what James Bryan Smith says. Our goal is not tolerance or equality, but love. Our goal is not tolerance or equality. It is love. Now, that does not mean a hammer. That does not mean standing in judgment. You need to make sure you understand what grace is. And you need to understand how Jesus operated in these areas. Use his example. Don't use mine. Don't use TV. Don't use somebody. Look at him. You know, it's always a good default place. (laughs) Jesus. How did Jesus do this? Jesus was was the great one going in John 666 when it says a lot of other disciples we're going to take communion today and he's explaining a little bit about the Eucharist or the communion and John 666 says all these disciples left him he turned to the twelve and said hey you want to leave too? There's the road. There's the road but this is the deal. Do you think he loved them or not? This is the way. What did Peter say? Jesus where would we go? You're the Holy One of God. Good answer, Peter. Good answer. The next one is sin of the will. So we've been tempted. I was tempted a lot this week. It was hot. It was 183 degrees, and I'm not kidding. No. I am lying there. That's not a lie. That's a lie. Uh, but you haven't crossed the line. You've been tempted. We, we've been tempted. Jesus was tempted. But you haven't crossed the line. And I, and I tell people a lot, I said, I don't think the biggest challenge we have in the church today is that people are crossing the line. I think the biggest challenge in the church today is that people are not setting the line in the first place. They're not doing the work. They're not putting their hand to the plow. They're not getting in the word. They're not on their face before the Lord. They're not seeking wise counsel. They're not. They don't even know where the line is. I used to tell teenagers, uh, and I said, you you don't get conviction about sex before marriage in the backseat of a car when all the emotions and hormones are already going. If you can't find it, then you better have that before you leave the house. Uh, you, You just can't wait till then. we got to know where the lines are and go, we're not even going to get it close. Because crawling after Jesus is not just tapping up to a line. It is a direction and pursuit of righteousness. That's what this journey is about. It's not about trying to see how what I can get by with. How close to the line can I get? No, it's about pursuing after Jesus and all he has for us. It's a whole different way to get up in the morning. and Because you, you get up in the morning going, as we were singing the song, you get up with a different set of eyes. Going, why would I even think about, why would I think about with Jen, seeing how far in my marriage with her, about how far I can flirt with somebody over here and just flirt and flirt. I can get away with how much can I get away with. Or how much can I take advantage of her and I just know she'll stay with me because she said she'll never divorce me. Why am I even looking for that line? Why am I not pursuing for my love, agape love, sacrificial love for her? When you have two people who are pursuing sacrificial love for each other, you got something beautiful. But if you only have one doing it, there's trouble. 
The great thing between us and God is we always know there's one. (laughs) We're not sure there's always two because that's us. You know, one of my biggest lies that I tell myself is that I deserve this. I've used the example before. Sometimes I get home eight or nine o'clock at night and there's that bluebell ice cream sitting in there. I've been out saving the world all day. Do I not deserve sitting down at 59 years old and God's going to suspend all the glucose spike. He's going to suspend all the metabolism issues I'm going to have. He's going to suspend all that. I'm going to get great sleep just because. I deserve it. It's my right. Oh, we've got some rights in this world that I'm going to tell you don't line up with God's righteousness just so you know. You have a right to go home today. Or maybe you could even do it in the service because we've got it on our phone to look at porn. A certain type. I know there's laws on the other part, obviously. But, I think, but I'm just saying you have that right. Because America allows you to have that right. I have the right to criticize the pastor's sermon today. And guess what? It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, if I believe God's put it on my heart, I'm going to say it. But it might not line up with God's righteousness, your critique and your critical spirit that you carry and your controlling spirit. Oh, you have the right. Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. He said all things are permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. You know, you can become mastered by your rights. You want to become mastered by God's righteousness, which is empowered by the filling of his spirit. We'll talk more about next week. One of the things we have in our culture, and I know I'm going long here. I thought this was going to be a short sermon, but man alive. We're here. Is that we live in a world today, and you, do it, you may do it in your own home, but we definitely see it in the political culture. That emotionalism equals truth. That may be the way spouses fight and have conversations. If I can get enough emotion, then I don't have to come up with anything else. I don't have to bring anything else to the table. And if I can throw a little ism or a phobic in there, then I really got you. I can just, I can just pigeonhole you, and I don't have to really even think about what I, where I am. If I can emotionalism, if we are emotional beings. I believe worship should be emotional, but I'm not judging the rest of you. I'm just saying I believe emotion should come pouring out of us. I believe we're designed for emotion lined up with truth. But some people have enough knowledge where they have no emotion and get nothing done. Some people have a ton of emotion and passion but have no truth and knowledge to back it up and try to move forward that way. There's ditches on both sides, right? There's somewhere in between that we as believers, and that's a reason why being in community consistently is critical. And I realize I get in trouble going, well, where people are. I, I believe people should take vacations, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things I believe, you better surround yourself with people who will hold you accountable. And I think it's sometimes hard to do on a, in an in a, in a earbud, and that's it. See, I want to be with a group of people that who I'm becoming matters. 
Let me say it again. I want to be at the group of people where who I am becoming really matters. I don't want to be a sneak in, sneak out. And God bless you, and we love having you here. If that's you, and I'm not saying it is. But man, I want to be a part of a group of people where what I am becoming, the progress or transformation that's happening in my life matters in the group. And they're going to hold me accountable to that. Where my emotionalism won't be enough to just... No, they're going to go, well, let's, okay. After you chill out, let's talk. About truth. What's happening in our political climate today, we see it throwing back, volley back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's not just one, it's both. I'm sorry if if you don't like that. It just is what I believe. I believe. But we see it in churches too. We see it in families. We see this thought of two major reasons in this climate of criticism. I was out at the gym yesterday shooting baskets and just running, doing things. And by myself, it was 183 degrees, I think, in there. But I was out there. But good things must come because the Lord just gave me this. And I don't know if this ever happens to you, but the Lord gives me something. And I have to go find a pen and paper. So I'm digging through the little closet over there trying to find a piece of paper and a pen. And I'm ripping stuff and writing down. But the Lord just brought this to me. I believe. I know people say it's dangerous to say the Lord gave you something. So I'm just going to give you a disclaimer. Maybe you didn't. So you listen. And this is this. Two major reasons we operate this way, two major ones, and I'm sure there's some in between, is one is we think we're flawless. And or our positions are flawless. In our political culture, we either, one, think that we personally are flawless and our positions are flawless. So it allows us the opportunity to criticize and critique without shame or guilt. Or, it's this, we know how significant our flaws are, personally and in our positions, and we use them as a cover and deflecting point. Let me say it again. If you're a person of criticism and that's your bent and that's how you, that's your go-to, please think about this. One, because we do it from church to church too. It's not just a political arena. It's church to church. Sometimes we just get a piece of somebody's life or a piece of some church's what this way, and then we form an opinion. And we don't, because see what that does is I don't have to get to know them, right? That gets me off the hook. That, that, That takes me off the hook. But either one, we think we are flawless and and or our positions are flawless. Or we know personally how significantly flawed we are and even our positions are flawed, but this is a cover or a way to deflect that thought. Do that what you wish. But I will say this. Neither position is trustworthy and both are dangerous. Neither position are trustworthy there may be trustworthy people somewhere, but those positions, that they're neither trustworthy and they both are dangerous. And you can go to enough places and churches this day and age where you can hear what you want to hear. And you can go in enough and get out enough to hear what you want to hear. And feel all right about yourself. One of probably one of the biggest lies that we know is that when we no longer call sin, sin, 
We call it something else. There's no need for repentance. There's need, no need for Jesus. Matter of fact, there really is no need for him. It's kind of crazy to be inside of a church where they said, we don't call sin, sin. Because without that, there's no need for repentance, right? And without that, there's no need for Jesus. So if we just say it's a sickness, or if we help people make excuses as far as, well, let's just be a victim culture. And let me tell you this. I want to make sure I say this. I believe there's real victims. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe there are real victims, and there needs to be some type of, 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 of apology or at times, and, or, 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 or from a legal standpoint, things need that. I get with all that, but that's different than you being, a, being victimized and staying a victim. Those are different things. But if you allow that to become your identity, the enemy will say to you, it's not the lies you tell, it's the lies you believe and take inside and go, I will be a victim from now on and it allows me not to have to do anything else. Because that's always my go-to. And I hate it when you've been victimized. And I, I get all that. But man alive, Jesus came for more than just you being, we could, be, we could say today, right? We just read today, Adam and Eve's fault. We're victims. I don't have to do anything. I wasn't there. But I got good news for you. And you're going, thank goodness there is a point to this thing. Because as long as we stay where there is no sin... And we, don't, we call it something else. It allows us to hide. It allows us to blame. But Craig Rochelle says, and I love this statement, says you're only as strong as you are honest. You're only as strong as you are honest. What stories are you telling yourself right now? that are allowing you to do what you know you should be doing, but you've convinced yourself you don't have to because you've told yourself this lie long enough that you don't have to do anything different. And you know God's shown you. You know it. Or he's brought counsel around, or he's brought the word and scripture, whatever that is. You know. You just know. No doubt there are people in this room right now who absolutely cannot handle the truth. How do you deal with truth? Are you willing to surrender to God no matter what it would mean? Would people be afraid to tell you the truth? Because you go on the attack. They've just quit telling you. Are you offended easily? Do people tiptoe around you just trying to figure out what mood you're in? Now, again, I realize there's some physical things that can go with that hormonal, a lot of different things that can happen with that, but let me say this. A lot of it's spiritual too. Because see, if you're, listing, if you're listed in any of those and plus some, you're extremely vulnerable, dangerously vulnerable to the lie. But the good news again is this. I didn't say again. I didn't say it a while ago, but it's this. Sin's goal is separation. 
God's goal is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. I'll just go verse 16. If you skip it down to 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. For we once regarded Christ in this way, we do no so longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. He's restoring us back to what we were designed to do. See, he's not just, he didn't just come to die to get us to heaven. He came back to start the restoration now. The old is gone, the new is here. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through who? Christ. And, in, and, and, and gave us the ministry of us. If you, again, I've said to you a hundred times here. If you want to know what your ministry are, your umbrella ministry is what? Reconciliation. Literally means returning to the divine. Think about that. Your ministry is to help people return to the purpose they were designed for. I don't know what your job is, but it ain't no bigger than that. That you've been called, he saw fit to use us as those people. To help people be returned to the divine. To the garden. What it was like before the fall. That God was reconciling himself to Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Another lie. Proverbs, I think it is, or, yeah, that as far as the east is from the west. Not counting our sins against us, he has committed to us the minute message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. I don't even know how to say it. We beg you. We wish we could light a fire under your rear end. I wish I had a cattle prod. I wish there was something I could do to get you to do this. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, and that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me say it to you, friend. God not only came to forgive you of your sins, he came you to have the power over sin. To me, that's a half gospel. When you say that Christ only came to forgive us of our sins, he came to give us the power to live over our sins. By one man's sin, we were all cursed. By one man's death and resurrection, we all live. That's good news. I know you'd rather have 35 minutes of good news and five of bad <laughs> instead of what I did today. Next week will be good. So come back next week and we'll talk about nudist colony or whatever, okay? But I just want to encourage you. He's got a great plan for us. And when you're convinced you've been told a lie long enough that he doesn't, or you've been told a lie that's just enough to get in, I just pray today that that lie is blown up. He has so much more. And to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine According to the power that is at work within us. 
That's the key. And we're going to talk more about that next week. About what we lost in the garden was the power. And how is that restored? And what does that look like? You okay with that? Okay, thank you guys. Won't you stand with me, Josiah? We're going to go move into the time of the communions we do. On a regular basis here. And uh, just logistically, let me share this with you. If you are here for the first time or just for a reminder, what we try to do is come down at the tables here. And we ask that you come down this aisle. If you're on this side, both uh, sections and this side, both sections come down that aisle and then return back down the middle. And we do it here at the table. Uh, We take the bread, dip it in the cup, and you take of it here. You take it back to your seat, wherever you want to do that. But... uh, we're just uh, thankful you're here today. And we, especially in the Church of Nazarene, believe in open communion. So if you're a believer in Christ, oh man, we're in. We're with you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just what we, what we feel like this morning. And I just, I tell you again, back to what we said earlier. We come to points now, and I'm assuming the song we're singing too, is we come to a point where we remember. <laughs> we just need to, is that right? Scandal of grace? Uh, just to remember, as often as you do this, as often as you take the bread and the cup, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Another opportunity as a community to share together as a family. It's pretty special. And I agree with Richard Foster. There are things that happen in this room when God's people are together, Konania, that cannot happen, will not happen when we're separate. It happens in a room like this. All around the world, under trees, doesn't have to be a room, but when God's people come together. Lord, we hope, we hope and pray today, Lord, that we have come to a time like this. We've done the best we know how to present your word today, Lord, and we want to be an example of what you can do in someone's life. Lord, we come today realizing that, man, maybe even this week we've kind of slid into this concept of I'm going to let that thought roll around in my head. So if I let it stay there long enough, then I, for whatever reason, I don't think, even though I know what your word says, maybe I know what other would tell me. I look at that and go, no, I've convinced myself I'm smarter than that. Or maybe that's it. And Lord, the fall happened. But Lord, today we come at this time to celebrate the other end of that. The reconciliation, the death, resurrection, ascension, the sending out of your people, Lord. But we come today to remember what you have done for us. Lord, use this time right now. Just as even looking around that stadium this week, Talking Stick Resort was holy ground. Not always, maybe. (laughs) But yeah, maybe it is if your people carry wherever they carry you and wherever our foot sits down. Lord, help us right now to remember this is a holy moment. In your name we pray. Amen. Come as you feel it.